in going to chapter 37, um, but that's not the case. There's a lot of things here that um, I believe that God's um, put on my heart that His Spirit wants for us to hear and receive this morning. So why don't we begin with prayer, and then uh, we'll start this chapter. Lord, we thank you, God, for this time together. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in our lives and through our lives in this church and through this through this church. And we pray, God, that you would continue to strengthen us and empower us by your spirit. Lord, that you would continue to provide for all of our needs, Lord, so that we may serve you effectively, Lord, and, and um, represent you, God, in a way that you deserve, that you're worthy of. Lord, I, I want to take this time this morning to lift up our missionaries in Morocco and Jinja and the Czech Republic and in Mexico, down in Juarez, Lord, and um, Father, you know the, the different things that are going on there and, and, and the, the praises and the struggles, Lord, that, that they lift up to you that we want to partner with them in. Pray your blessing upon them today, Lord, that you would continue to provide and strengthen, strengthen them and, and, and meet the needs that they have, Lord, not only um, with the physical things, but spiritual and emotional things as well. Lord, for the work that you're doing here in our church at the bridge and our preschool and our chaplaincy ministry and and um, as you use us, Lord, to serve one another here through the different ministries that we have and, and in the places that you've put us, I pray, God, that you give, give us boldness, God, give us courage to speak the gospel message, Lord, to love people, um, Lord, to set aside self and to be servants of you, to serve one another, to love you and to love others, God, as you've loved us. I pray, Lord, that, our, that through our time this morning as we study about Esau and the Edomites and um, what they represent and, and what, they, what they fell into. God, that it would be a warning to us that you would give us the ears to hear and the heart to receive, Lord. That you would um, continue, that we would be clay in your hands. Um, clay that would be molded, uh, that would be molded by you, soft and malleable in your hands, Lord. May we not be stiff-necked. May we not have to be broken. But Lord, if we're in that place where pride is taken over and there's lack of humility, we God, we ask that you would root it out. For Lord, we love you and we want your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, when we read through the when we read through last week that last part of chapter 35, um, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but if you've been reading ahead and if you studied through the book of Genesis at all, you know that there's a transition that took place or is taking place the end of chapter 35 with the mention or the account of Rachel's death, meaning that was um, uh, uh, Jacob's uh, wife, one of his wives, and then also a transition with the, with the account or the mention of his, Jacob's father's death, Isaac. And, and in, in conjunction with those two things, those two significant events, we, re, we also read about uh, or we're also given the brief genealogy of, the, of the, the 12 sons of Jacob who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we know that really the rest of the Bible is a focus on that family and the redemptive work that God did in and through them to bring forth the Messiah and our Savior Jesus Christ. And as we read on now, um, we're going to see the focus in the remaining chapters of the book of Genesis um, uh, the remaining focus will now be put on the life of Joseph, one of the, the 12 sons of Jacob. And matter of fact, we'll find out that Jacob, uh, or uh, to his own fault, that, that Joseph was his favorite son. And um, 
But before we, we, we get into chapter 37, before we're told about Joseph and about the things that God was doing in and through him, there's this parenthesis here in chapter 36 that details the descendants of Isaac's other son, Esau. And in light of this, there are a few key things that are important for us to see. And as a foundation to these things, I want to I want to highlight that, that the, really the first thing for us to notice is that, is that five times in this chapter, when, uh, the, the, the five times in this chapter, Esau is called Edom. Or more specifically, it'll say Esau is Edom, or if you read it through it, it'll say that Esau is the father of the Edomites. And this is significant as it relates to the history of the children of Israel because the Edomites are mentioned more than 200 times in Scripture. And the Edomites became the sworn enemies of Israel. And there's, there's a distinction that's being made here for us about them. Not only identification, but a distinction. Remember, Jacob and, and Esau are dwelling in the land of Canaan. They're brothers. They're both descendants of Isaac both descendants through, through Abraham, to whom God had made these covenantal promises to, where God said, to Abraham, to you, and to your descendants. Well, Esau was one of these descendants. He wasn't like any of the other tribes or any other people that we read about in the book of, uh, in the, book of the Bible. We, we read about the Philistines and the Moabites and the Malachites and, and, um, and, 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 all, and the Hittites and the Hittites and all these other different people that were of the land of Canaan but, but the Edomites were, were different in that they were family. They were blood. And um, this is significant as it relates to the history of the children of Israel because the, the Edomites, as I mentioned, they're, they're mentioned more than 200 times, but they became the, the sworn enemies of Israel. And we could see that would be a natural thing for those who dwelt in the land that God had brought the Israelites to, the, the Philistines and, 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 and all the others that we read about as we study through Kings and, and, and through Judges and, 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 and through Chronicles about all the people that the nation of Israel fought against. But we, we would not necessarily expect this from brothers or from brother nations, right? That they would be vowed enemies. And with this in mind, we need to, we need to remember that spiritually speaking, Esau... And his descendants, these, these Edomites, they are a picture of our own sin nature, spiritually speaking. A picture of our flesh, the Bible tells us, that less against the temporary, less after the temporary things of this life, and wars against the Spirit of God that lives inside of us. And as a matter of fact, Edom, or the Edomites, and Esau's life depicts those very things. And, and, and we see that in contrast to the children of Israel. And when we see Edom or the Edomites or Esau in contrast to Jacob and his sons, the 12 sons that were born to him, when we see that in contrast to them, it gives us a picture. It gives us a picture of the new creations that we have become through our faith in Jesus Christ and of how we have become God's people, Bible tells us, grafted in, adopted, God's people, his children, who have also been given promises, a heavenly citizenship, 
And we're called to be sojourners who go through this life as we follow after God and live by faith, just like we see and read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now the 12 tribes of of these descendants of, 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 of Jacob. So as we study through the nation of Israel's history and we see how these Edomites, the descendants of Esau, were continually at war with Israel, their brothers, we see that by their ongoing conflict, we see a graphic illustration. We see a graphic picture of how our flesh today, even those of us who are in Christ Jesus, how our flesh wars against this new nature that we've received, how our flesh wars against the Spirit of God who now lives in us. And, and if you saw my Facebook post this week, I mentioned that, that, that passage from Romans chapter 5 where Paul talks about that battle that he himself even struggled with, that, that, that how he willed to do the things of God, the things that were good, that he wanted to do that, but yet so many times he, he found himself not doing the things that he wanted to do. In fact, he found himself doing the things that he did not want to do. There was this battle going on inside of him. And in, 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 in fact, the Apostle Paul, he wrote about this further in the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25, Paul wrote and he said this. He said, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. And here we have, again, this picture of Esau and Jacob. Edomites and the Israelites. And and Paul goes on and he says, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousies, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, fractions, and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like, he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says this, the fruit of the Spirit, this new creation that we become, God's Spirit inside of us, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul says, against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, you and I, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, we've crucified this sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. So just like our sin nature, guys, is contrary to and in conflict with the Spirit of God, so too were the Edomites. Contrary to, in conflict with the Israelites. And that's the reason why this chapter is dedicated to Esau and his descendants. Now, because this chapter is filled with unusual names that are hard, at least for me, to accurately pronounce, I'm going to spare you this comfort of trying to read it aloud, verse by verse, to you this morning. Rather, what I want to do is I want to briefly explain this genealogy that's going to pop up on the screen. Boom. (laughs) 
and then highlight a few other important things before we move on into uh, chapter 37. I think this offers some clarity to, the, to what we're going to see here. And in the first eight verses of this chapter, you can look at it and you can connect the names to the, to the, the genealogy that's up on the screen there. But in the first eight verses of this chapter, the foundation of Esau's genealogy is recorded for us. And if you look there in verses 2 and 3, the first thing that is mentioned are these three wives at the top of the, the list there, these three wives that Esau had. We know that the first two of Esau's wives were from Canaan. They were Canaanites. They Specifically, it says, the daughters of Canaan. Meaning, what that means is that they, they did not come from Abraham's relatives, or from Abraham's descendants, like his father Isaac's wife, or even his brother Jacob's wives had come from. Rather, we know that these daughters of Canaan, Esau's wives, one was a Hittite and the other was a Hivite. We're, we're told that here in these verses. And we know when we look back to chapter 26 of the book of Genesis that, that both of these wives were a grief to his father Isaac and to his mother Rebekah. And when Isaac responded to Esau having taken Canaanites for, um, for his wives, um, he responded by commanding his other son, Jacob, to not. He commanded and said, do not take a Canaanite wife for yourself. And, and that command that Esau also heard after he had already taken two Canaanite wives, it moved Esau to take for himself a third wife, which is also there on the top of the list. This time, this third wife, however, was from one of Abraham's descendants. But rather than make the long journey back to Padan Aram, like Jacob had done, as we've been reading about in the previous chapters, to get himself some wives, Esau went to Ishmael, Ishmael being a descendant of Abraham. But also, we know that Ishmael was a, was a work of Abraham's flesh. It's a picture, again, of the carnal man, the flesh nature. And, and we know that, this, that Ishmael and, and, and Esau going to, to take a wife from him, uh, from one of his daughters, was just as bad as going to the Canaanites. But even more importantly, Ishmael's daughter was not one of the descendants of God's chosen people. One of the, the, the descendants who had been chosen by God to inherit the promises, so his marriage to Ishmael's daughter was no different than his marriage to the daughters of Canaan. The point is, these three wives of Esau, who we first read about in verses 2 and 3, where they, or specifically who they were and where they were from, further depicts for us or further illustrates for us Esau is the carnal man, as they illustrate this foolish desire of Esau for the, his foolish desire for the temporal things of this life. And it illustrates his disregard for and his unwillingness to accept the things that God had for him. In fact, what Esau did and how he lived as the carnal man is accurately described for us Really, in, in even in an application way to our lives, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, verses, verse 14, which says this. It says, the man without the Spirit does not accept 
the things that come from the Spirit of God. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that comes from the Spirit of God. For why? Because they're foolishness to him. And, and if you don't think this is true, go talk to anybody out there in the world who does not believe in Jesus Christ, who wants nothing to do with God, and begin to tell them the wonderful things of God or the things that God says to do, and they're going to go, you're a fool. Like, what do you mean pray for your enemies? What do you mean be a servant of all? It's not the way the world thinks, and, it's not, and they don't receive it because they don't understand it. The Spirit of God is not in them. All that is there is carnality, flesh, a sin nature. And so again, in verse 14, it says, The man without the Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God, this new nature, being this new creation, he does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Nevertheless, with these three wives... Back to our list there, Esau, according to verses 4 and 5, the the next part of the section that I'd like for you to look at, we see that he had a total of five sons, Esau. One with Ada, one with Bashamath, and three with Aholai Bema. Then, by the way, I worked like 30 minutes or more just on those three names. (laughs) And I got them phonetically spelled out. So you're like, oh, you did that pretty good. You could do the whole chapter. No. But we know that with these five sons with, that were born to Ada, Bethshema, and Oholi Bema, that, that 11 grandsons who are also on the list that follow down through this family tree, that 11 grandsons were born to Esau uh, through, these, through these five sons. And the, the positions in, in, in the, the positions of chiefs and even kings were told that these grandsons and sons of Esau uh, rose up to were, were they're accounted for us as we're told that they dwelt in the land of Edom and that they're accounted in the verses that follow. So not only is there uh, the record of, of, of these descendants, the five sons, the, 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 the 11 grandsons, um, as, as their names, the names are repeated multiple times in this chapter because they're, they're then accounted in relationship to not just a genealogical record, but in relationship to, to who they became as they dwelt in the land of Edom. But guys, when we consider the place where Esau and his descendants chose to live, there's something very significant for us to see. Um, and um, as, we, as we consider the place where Esau and his descendants chose to live, we need to consider verses 6 through 8. Last two verses in these first eight verses of this foundational genealogical account, we are told that Esau, if you look there, it says that he left the land of Canaan because the possessions that he had gained while living in the land of Canaan were too great for him to continue dwelling together with his brother. In other words, Esau had decided, he made this decision that it was necessary for him to leave the very place where God had blessed him and leave his brother because God had given him too much. The carnal man considers the things of God to be foolishness. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in the place where God's blessings are being poured out upon my life, where I'm receiving great blessings, doesn't it make sense that this is the place where you would want to stay? 
And it seems absolutely foolish to do this, but in light of these verses, we see two important things when we remember this. We've got to first remember that the land of Canaan was the promised land. It was the land that had been given to Abraham and his descendants as a dwelling place. And when we consider this, the first thing that we need to see in light of all that is the foolishness of Esau we, we have to recognize how foolish he was for leaving the very place where he had received all that he had gained. But even more than that, the very place where God had called him to dwell. <laughs> the very place where God had called his people to have fellowship with him. When he first called, when God first called Abraham out, it wasn't just to a place, it was into a relationship. Abraham, come I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so by Esau moving in this foolishness, not only was he leaving the place of blessing, he was leaving the place of fellowship with God, the place where God had called him to dwell. Why? Because his possessions had become too great. Yet by this, we also see ultimately, guys, and, and, and this gets real hard when we look at it this way, and especially when we reflect it into our own lives. But by this, we see how Esau's love for the things that God had given him had become greater than his love for God. It had become greater than his love for his brother. And the truth is, when I read about this, I think about how foolish Esau was to leave considering the land of Canaan was vast. It wasn't as if there wasn't room in another place of the land of Canaan. Land of Canaan was, was vast, and if it was really necessary for Esau to spread out, to have more room, there were certainly many other places within the land of Canaan that he could have gone. Why then did he go to Mount Sire, to this land that would become known as the land of Edom, outside of the bounds of the promised land? Furthermore, I find it sad that Esau allowed for his possessions, these blessings from God, to be the reason for leaving the presence of his brother. Now, granted, him and his brother had had some pretty rocky things going on. But still, to make this, this drastic place, this drastic decision to separate that would ultimately lead to the place where these guys would be adversaries, enemies for generation after generation after generation. Why? Because his possessions become too great. Yet the fact of the matter, guys, this kind of thing is still happening today within the family of God. When brothers and sisters in the Lord do not put the things that God has blessed us with in their right place, this happens each and every time. Meaning the possessions that we have gained as a result of God's blessing, they are then given a greater priority than the people who God has called us to dwell with. And in doing so, we forsake the fellowship and the gathering together of ourselves in order to be with the things that God has given to us. Or even worse, we allow for the things that we have gained and the use, and we, the things that we have gained and the use and the care of them to consume so much of our time and so much of our energy that we no longer have the time to fellowship with God. But in the book of Hebrews. Maybe this passage has more application to you now in light of these things because in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, we're warned against this as it clearly says, and let us consider one another. Not your things, not your possessions, 
not the blessings of God, but let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But let us exhort one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Guys, do you see the day approaching? If you can't answer that question, you need to study out prophecy. You need to become more familiar with what the Word of God says about the times that we're living in. You need to look no further than the Middle East and see Assad bombing his own people and laying waste to the city of Damascus, which is a prophecy that, will be, that, was, that is spoken about in Isaiah chapter 17. It's one of the things that we're told to look for in relationship to the Lord's return, the destruction of Damascus. And I'm here to tell you, you can go and double check me, but all throughout the history of the world, that ancient city has never been destroyed. It's never been brought to rubble like it is now, like God said it would, like God said it would in the day of his return. It should, it should put the hair on the back of your neck standing straight up. It should cause you to be living expectantly and looking hopefully for the Lord's return. It should be causing you to find passages of Scripture like we read here in Hebrews. Okay, what does God call me to do? To be with my brothers, to dwell with them, to not forsake fellowship, to encourage and exhort one another as we see this day, the day of the Lord approaching. To not allow for the blessings and the possessions and the things that God has given us to take that priority in our lives over God in fellowship with Him and over being with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Guys, now this place, Edom, where Mount Sire, we're told, is still today and where Esau and his family went to live, it's significant to understand, okay, he had all the land of Canaan where eventually all 12 tribes spread out and had a huge portion, of so much that they never ever fully took possession of it till to this day, even being back in the land. But rather than go out to the land of Canaan and spread out, we're told that, that Esau and his family went to live at Mount Sire, a place that became called Edom. And, and when you begin to ask yourself why he chose that, you need to look at where that place is and what that place is like. And if you begin to do the study and the research on it, the first thing that you're going to understand is that Mount Sire, or the land of Edom, is a high mountainous region. It's a high mountainous region, and it's on the other side of the Jordan River. And if you were to look at a map, you would see that Edom is located east of the Promised Land and south of the Dead Sea. But more importantly, we know that Edom's capital city in this high mountainous region, the capital, the very capital city, was in a high mountain fortress, a place that had been carved out of a rock mountain, a whole city carved out of a rock mountain. And this city was only accessible by a narrow passage called the Al Saik, which simply means the tunnel. And today, this rock city fortress, which can be still seen and visited, is known as the ancient city of Petra. If you've not been to Israel or, or, or 
to this area south of the Dead Sea to, to go and visit it. I'd encourage you to, to go online and, and Google search it and, and, and see some of the different things that are still there. It's a phenomenal place. And it gives a better understanding to why Esau and the Edomites would go and live in this region and, and, and make their capital city in this place. And when we consider how Esau, who gives us, remember, we've got to keep this in mind, Esau, who gives us a picture of our own sin nature, when we consider how he moved out of the promised land and away from his brother to go and dwell in a high mountainous place because of his many possessions. Okay, think about that. i got all these possessions. I'm going to go and dwell on this high mountain place in this rock fortress of a city. Okay? When we consider that, it reveals this. It reveals pride. It reveals a pride that filled Esau's heart. Look at what all I got. Look at what all I possess. I have no need. Furthermore, Esau's geographical move to a higher elevation and to this capital city that was constructed by the Edomites' descendants who became the vowed enemies of Israel is also a reflection of the pride we're told that God would judge them for. They lifted themselves up to a high place. And in the book of Obadiah, if you've ever read it and studied the book of Obadiah, but it's, 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 a, it's a judgment pronounced through the prophet Obadiah upon the Edomites, upon Edom. The whole book is. And that whole book declares a judgment against Edom. And, 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 and in chapter 1, basically God says this, for the pride that has filled your hearts, he says, I'll bring you down. He said, for the pride that has filled your heart, I will bring you down. And history teaches us that after years of conflict between Edom and Israel, God, in fulfillment of prophecy, literally brought Edom down from its high place, from its fortified city, from this thing that they put their trust and faith in. Guys, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, Jesus speaking about that kind of a pride that can fill the hearts of all people, including us. He said, and whoever exalts himself, whoever lifts himself up, will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Furthermore, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, it tells us, a little bit into the verse, it says this, it says, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the reason why God is so opposed to a prideful heart is because, a, is because pride ultimately separates us from God. Is that not what we see here with Esau and the Edomites? Not only does it, put us, not only does it separate us from God, it puts us at war with God and God's people. Pride. Pride causes us to think that we don't need God. And pride makes us believe that we can live without God. And the fact of the matter is, this is what's seen in Esau's actions throughout all of his life. If you remember, even from the very beginning, as Esau, back in Genesis chapter 25, the rightful heir because of his birth to the birthright blessing, it says that he gave priority to his flesh by selling his birthright for a bowl of stew. It was a bean stew to boot, lentils. 
It wasn't just, it wasn't even all meat. I mean, you look at it and you go, okay, what are you, you're going to, I mean, it's, it's like, it was pure foolishness. Pride. Priority to the flesh. He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. And this birthright that Esau was so quick to sell, it was his connection. It was his connection to the promises and blessing that God had made to and handed down through Abraham. And by exchanging the birthright for a bowl of stew, Esau was simply saying that he did not need God. Do you get that? I don't need your promises. I don't need your blessings. I don't need this birthright. I need this stew. I can take care of myself. Jacob, give it to me now, lest I, what did he say? I die. Man, that's how it is for us with the lust of the flesh, the desires of the sin nature. It's like we're so willing to exchange the things of God, our relationship God with God, and the relationship with others who are God's people for the temporary things of this life the Bible says are passing away. And by exchanging the things of God, we do the same thing as Esau. We say we don't need God. We don't want the things of God. I don't want you, God. I don't want the things that you have for me. I'll be all right on my own. I want this, and I want it now. And the same giving way to the lust of the flesh and the declaration of not needing or wanting, wanting God, it was demonstrated by the nation of Edom as a whole when you study it out as they sought to exalt themselves through this ongoing conflict with their brother nation, Israel, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the first recorded instance of this is in the book of Exodus where we read that it was the Edomites who would not allow Israel to pass through their land when Israel was fleeing from Egyptian slavery and making their way back to the promised land. They said, no, go around. They were coming up through Egypt, and they had to pass through the land of Edom. They would have saved much time and much effort. They said, you're not welcome here. And this opposition to God and God's people continued, not only through the age of the judges, but even through the reign of the kings, specifically 15 of Israel's kings, beginning with Saul and going all the way down through the, through the reign of King Ahaz. And guys, so this pride that filled Esau's heart, that deceived him into believing that the things of this life were more important than his relationship with God and more important than his relationship with his brother, sadly, Esau gave up things of great value for the temporary pleasures of this life. That's what we see in this chapter. That's what we see in the record of Esau's descendants and the story that follows their mention and when we consider Esau and his descendants, guys, we must be willing to confront our own sin nature that still lives in us, that we're called to crucify, to put to death, to reckon dead and alive to Christ. But we need to confront our own sin nature and see how we can be tempted as well today to set aside God and his will for our lives simply for the temporary pleasures of this life. And we must be willing to see how all of our hearts in doing so, can be filled with pride, can become full of pride, a pride that can deceive us into thinking that I don't need fellowship with God and I don't need fellowship with God's people. All I need is this bowl of stew. That's literally what you're saying. I don't care what your thing is. I just need this. It's more important. 
But guys, one of the many safeguards against that kind of attitude, against kind of falling into that trap, because it doesn't, we just don't wake up and go, hey, yeah, I'm going to trade my, my fellowship with God and with God's people for fill in the blank. You just wake up one morning and do that. It's a progression. It happens slowly as the Satan tempts us and as our, our flesh is, is led back into those things that, we, that God saved us and delivered us from, that we have now elevated to this place of priority where we go, yeah, I'm going to go to Mount Sire. I'm going to go to Edom. And one of the safeguards against this, where Scripture gives us many different ones, is found, guys, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. And it's a very familiar passage of Scripture, but we need to look at it in light of what we're talking about because the Bible tells us that when we're to go to battle, whether it's against Satan and the forces of darkness or against the evil that's within our own hearts still today, there's a battle plan. And this is why it says in verses 11 through 18, it says this, tells us, it says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, guys, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and powers of darkness or of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, do you hear that? So that when the day of evil comes, I don't know about you, but it looks like it's come. He says that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. What is true? What do you know to be true? With the breastplate of righteousness in place. You know, righteousness is that religious word that just means doing the right thing. And if you know the truth, you're going to know what the right thing is to do. You know, that's so important in the world that we lived in because, because truth now is relative, right? Not really, but that's what the world tells us. And there's no sense of true righteousness because people say, hey, what might be right for you may not be right for me. Who are you to judge? But yet God's word truly tells us what truth and righteousness is. And it says to gird it around our belt, put it upon our chest. Why? Because that's going to protect us in the ways that we're talking about. And it says, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The Bible tells the saint he slings fiery darts at us all the time. And if you don't have the shield of faith, walking by faith, living by faith, as we're called to do as believers of Jesus Christ, you know what? You're going to eat those fiery darts with your face, right in your eyes, right in your heart. He says, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation, guarding your mind. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with these kinds of prayer requests. And he says, with this in mind, be alert. Be alert, like a good soldier, like a sentry. Be alert. See, guys, it's, it's really what we're told in here by Paul in Ephesians is to stick to the basic things. Stick to the simple things. Persevere, endure. Praying, fellowshipping, studying God's word, singing songs of praise, 
filling your hearts with the joy and the truth of knowledge of your salvation, which is secure in Jesus Christ and this living hope. When we stay focused on those things, you want to know what? All the other stuff, when Jesus is the head, all the other things, the cars, the trucks, the boats, the TVs, on and on and on, which God wants to certainly bless us with, is not, God's not saying, go home and clean house. Maybe he is to some degree. I don't know. If it's been lifted up to this high place, to a place of idolatry in your life where it's causing you to forsake fellowship with God and causing you to forsake fellowship with other believers, then yeah, maybe it needs to go for a while. But when you're in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, the way that, that, that girding yourself with the full armor of God, those other things are going to be in the right place. That's the point. Now, as we begin to wrap things up, Make your way to the end of the chapter, almost the end of the chapter. Verse 31 is where I want to I I look at. As we begin to wrap things up, I want to point out that in this chapter, we're told about Esau's sons who become the kings of Edom. They, for, there's chiefs, and there's this short genealogical account in verses 20 through, through, through 30 of the sons of Sire. And he went to Mount Sire, and there was already a people group living there. And, and again, that, that just further illustrates for us the... the, the the, that, you know, this really wasn't like a, a, a place where nobody lived where he could just stretch out and be his own man, right? There was, there was already people there, okay? The people of Sire that he decided to coexist with. He made an, an alliance, an allegiance with somebody who wasn't even his brother. And there's the mention of this, and this is who they became part of, or rather they became part of him, part of the Edomites. We see this down through historical records. But you have that in verses 20 through 30, you have their mention. Then when you get to verses 31 on down through the rest of the chapter, this is where we're told about Esau's sons, again, who became chiefs. And, and the key word here is kings over Edom. But more importantly, in verse 31, we're told this. We're told that these kings, it says, reigned before any king reigned over the children of Israel. And when I read about that, I'm, I, I know the history of Israel, and it just, it just goes, ugh! And, and, and it may seem like a very insignificant statement, but, it, but it's a very important statement, a very important thing that we're being told of about in light of, remember the context, why would that be mentioned right now? Why did that have to be put there before any of the kings ruled over Israel? Because contextually, you have to remember what we've been studying and learning about Esau and his descendants, what we're told here. And when you look at that statement, in light of what we're learning about Esau and his descendants, you really see that there's a warning here for God's people, for Israel and those of us who have been grafted in. Because historically, we know that the nation of Israel, who was governed by God for hundreds and hundreds of years, eventually got to the place where they said, we wish to be like all the other nations around us. We wish to be like Esau, who had kings ruling over them, the Philistines, the Malachites. We wish to be like them. And it wasn't just this simple statement, hey, we want a king ruling over us. It was everything that went along with that. They got to the place where they said, we want to be like all the other nations around us. And in doing so, they cried out to God, we're told, under the rule and reign over Samuel, a judge, one of the last judges. He said, give us a king. And by this, we see that Israel, as we look at this chapter in that context, that Israel, and you study the history, what happened? 
they became like Edom. And like all the other pagan nations around them, because in asking for a king, what they did is they too sought to separate themselves from God's authority. And they became self-ruled, self-dependent, instead of being ruled by and dependent upon God. And Israel desired to have a king ruling over them is another demonstration, another example of pride. Pride that can fill our hearts as the children of God still today. A demonstration of a prideful attitude that can creep into the hearts of every believer of God's people. Justin, if you guys want to come up, we're going to kind of close with this. Guys, in this desire, I don't want to, I don't want to beat this up too much, but this desire to be self-governed is, is lifting yourself up. It's going to a high place that, that only God should sit. This desire to be self-governed, this desire to be self-ruled is an attitude of the heart that ultimately says this, I don't need anyone or anything. Is it not? The Bible says, what do you have that you have not been given? You know, and that was a message that Esau should have considered as he decided, as he looked around and said, oh, look at how great these things are that I have. I got to go and make myself over here. What do you have that you have not been given? But we look at what we've been given and we think somehow that it's something that we've acquired because of our own smarts, our own resources. It's this pride that creeps in. We look at the things that God's even blessed us and we're like, I'm doing pretty good. No, you're not doing pretty good. God's doing good for you in spite of you. That's the message. And that was the message to Israel, and that's the message to Esau, and that's the message to us today. But when we get to that place where you go, look at what I got, I don't need anyone or anything, that is pride. It's a prideful attitude. And you know what, guys, comes with that? You ever met a self-made man? What comes with that is lack of mercy, a lack of compassion, to help others who may be in need. Because that guy says, I did it, you can do it too. Get up, quit your whining, and get to work. It's lack of compassion and this lack of, of mercy that comes along with that. And it's a dangerous thing because mercy... is an action that helps those who are in need even when they're not deserving of help. And it's a dangerous place to be and this dangerous attitude to have because God's Word tells us in James chapter 2, verse 3, that judgment without mercy is waiting for the one who shows no mercy. Judgment without mercy is waiting for the one who shows no mercy where we go, your help, my help, my love, my assistance, my kindness is going to be given to you only if I deem you worthy and deserving of it. And God says, man, I'm having no part of that. And my people should not be like that. And really, this takes us back to the, to the Edomites and to the book of Obadiah where God spoke to Edom and he said, because of your lack of mercy, God said this in that, that book of Obadiah, he said, because of your lack of mercy, you will be cut off, you will be searched out, deceived by your allies, 
and you will be prevailed against to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Strong words. Sadly, Esau and his descendants and the Edomites, they're a warning for us, guys. That's the reason why this chapter is here. They're a warning for us and a reminder to us that we cannot let the temporal things of this life get in the way of the eternal things of God. And we cannot allow for pride to creep into our hearts and lead us to the place where we wrongly believe that we do not need God or need God's people. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, this warning would stand before us this morning and penetrate into our hearts and our minds, God, that you would search us out and you would examine our lives, that we'd be willing to receive it and look, God, to these places where we've faltered, these places where little compromises have begun to come in and, Lord, where priorities have got out of whack. I pray, God, that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit this morning, God, to go from this place filled with power and conviction, Lord, to do what is right to stand for what is truth, to gird ourselves with the knowledge of our salvation. Lord, that we would seek God to encourage one another in these things as we say the day approaching. Lord, we love you and we worship you and we thank you so much for this time together this morning where we can come to your word, which is a lamp unto our feet. God, you're the savior of our souls. You're the giver of life. You're the breath of life. You're the bread of life. You're the word of life. And God, may you be our Lord, again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.